Ezekiel chapter 38, if you'll turn there. As we continue week three of our series, Behold, the Days Are Coming. Ezekiel in the Old Testament, you'll have the book of Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, then Daniel, the major prophets of the Old Testament, chapter 38. And I'm going to begin reading that verse 1. If you're visiting this week, we started a couple weeks ago a series, Behold, the Days Are Coming. Week 1, we looked at the role of Israel in the last days. Last week, we talked about the rapture of the church. Huge response. Huge response to it. Um, this week and next week, we're going to talk about the war of Gog and Magog. Ezekiel 38 39. It's a good time to remember to turn our ringers off our phones. We want to be attentive to what we're going to study today as we read in Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog and the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, and Meshach, and Tubal. And I will turn you around and put hooks into your jaws and lead you out with all your army, horses, and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. And Persia and Ethiopia and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all its troops, the house to Garma, from the far north and all its troops. Many people are with you. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. In verse 8, after many days you will be visited. In the latter years you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. And you will send coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. In verse 10, thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass that the thoughts will arise in your mind, and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against the land of unveiled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates to take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against the people gathered from nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. Verse 13, Sheba and Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all their young lions will say to you, Have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take great plunder? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. And you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O God, before their eyes. And in verse 17, thus says the Lord God, are you he of whom I have spoken in former days? By my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them. 
once again, Lord, as we pray, we just ask that as we read these words, Lord, what does it mean for us? Help us to be discerning of the days in which we are in. But Lord, may it cause us to leave this place desiring to live soberly and righteously because we are headed towards something. We are headed towards the culmination of things that will lead to the return of Christ and your kingdom being established. So Lord, uh, may we just uh, take these things that are before us knowing that they will be fulfilled just as the word of God declares in Jesus' name. Amen. So as war broke out in Israel last month, as I've said, there's been a lot of renewed interest and a lot of questions concerning end-time prophecy. And as we come to week three of our series, there's been a lot of talk and discussion among teachers of end-time prophecy concerning these two chapters that we're going to look at this week and next week, and that is Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now, some Christians have told me, as I've received phone calls and emails and had discussions with others, that they have heard teachings that this war that we're seeing in the Middle East now, as Israel has declared war on Hamas, as the northern front is heating up with with missiles coming in from Lebanon, and the, the thought of perhaps that this war is going to expand, uh, that it's the beginning, perhaps, of the events that we're reading about here in Ezekiel 38 and then 39 as well. So there are those who are thinking maybe perhaps these are the beginning of uh, stage-setting events that will lead to what we're reading about. Some people are confused. Perhaps they're thinking Ezekiel 38 and 39, what is described here in these chapters, are the same as the Battle of Armageddon. There have been those who have taught that the War of Gog and Magog will not take place until the end of the millennium reign, as mentioned in Revelation chapter 20. So once again, I want to bring before you this prophecy of Ezekiel given 2,600 years ago concerning this major battle that will take place in the latter years that is called the War of Gog and Magog. Are we seeing what is happening today? Set the stage for this major war that will take place in the Middle East. How do we know that this is not the Battle of Armageddon? Why are there two mentions of the battle or the War of Gog and Magog? And when will this war happen in the prophetic timeline. So what I want us to do as we begin to look at this, I want us to step back a little bit, set the stage for these two chapters, 38 and 39 of Ezekiel, and I want to remind us of what leads up to Ezekiel having this vision that's going to give us understanding and clarity as we go over what we just read. Remember, as we go through the Old Testament, that God would use the Assyrians to bring judgment on the house of Israel, the ten northern tribes, that happened in about 720 B.C. And he would later then bring judgment on the house of Judah by the Babylonians. And it would be Judah that would be led off into captivity. Uh, we know that Nebuchadnezzar would uh, come into Jerusalem in 605 B.C. He would take Daniel and the choice men of Judah off to Babylon, where they would serve in the affairs of the Babylonian government, in the palace of Babylon. There was a second wave of captives that would be taken later in 597 B.C. And there was a priest and there was a prophet that was taken, and his name is Ezekiel. And he would prophesy concerning the final judgment at the hands of the Babylonians 
along with his contemporary Jeremiah, and many of us have read his book or portions of his book, that is in Jerusalem at this time that Ezekiel's prophesied. Jeremiah is prophesying judgment against the house of Judah as well, and he is prophesying to the leaders, the civil and religious leaders, as he speaks of judgment that would come to them because of their disobedience and idol worship. In Ezekiel chapter 37, the chapter prior to what we just read, it looks down through time and gives us truth concerning Israel's restoration in the vision of the dry bones. And when you read Ezekiel 37, there's a valley that Ezekiel has a vision of. And there's a bunch of human bones that are out there, scattered. And the Lord says to Ezekiel, can these bones be made to live? And Ezekiel says, you know, Lord. And all of a sudden, the bones start to rattle. And they start to come together. And there's skeletons that are out there in the valley. And then pretty soon, there's the tissues and the muscles and the skin that come on the skeletons to where they're corpse. And, and Ezekiel is asked again by the Lord, can these bodies be made to live? And Ezekiel says, you know, Lord. And he would breathe life into those bodies. And it was speaking of the vision of a physical restoration of a nation, of a nation that was dead. They'd been out of the land for many, many years. We know after 70 AD for 2,000 years. And it would include a restoration of the land of Ezekiel chapter 36, speaking how they would come back from all the nations and they would come back into the land that they would inhabit the ancient cities again. They would plant the land that was desolate and they would have livestock and goods. And so in this vision of Israel's restoration, when it seems so hopeless... Chapters 36 and 37, God speaks of a gathering and a unity of Israel in the land. As God says, I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land, in the land on the mountains of Israel. And Ezekiel was looking forward to a restoration that was much greater than the return of the Jews after the 70 years captivity by Babylon. 536 B.C., Zerubbabel, Joshua, the high priest, come back. They rebuild the temple. It's Ezra that would come back with another wave of, of return, uh, a small amount of people. And then it would be Nehemiah in about 445 B.C. that would come back and rebuild the walls and around Jerusalem. So we have seen, as we look at and read Ezekiel 36 and 37, we have seen it be fulfilled right before our very eyes in our lifetime. That they have become a nation once again. Coming in to the land and restoring the ancient cities. Working the land once again. Living in the mountains of Israel. And that the ultimate fulfillment will happen when Jesus Christ comes back and restores the nation of Israel. We again talked about that in week number one. God's blueprint and plan for Israel in the last days. And I'll tell you this, as we go through Ezekiel 38 here, and as we are reminded of what has taken place since 1948, uh, we are living in the days of Ezekiel. We've seen a nation that was dead come alive once again. And Ezekiel, now in this vision that uh, we just read in Ezekiel 38, we read about this major battle described to us by the prophet. We want to know that it contains two chapters, as I said, Chapters 38 and 39. Chapter 38, which tells us of those who are involved in this invasion of Israel. 
And then chapter 39, which tells us of the destruction of those armies that come against Israel, and then the cleanup of the battle. The battle of Ezekiel 38, the war of Gog and Magog here described to us, gets twice the print of the battle of Armageddon gets. As you go through scripture in the Old Testament, there are many battles that are described to us that historically took place. There are future battles and wars talked about in scripture, which have not taken place, but they will because God's word declares it. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Behold, the days are coming. The theme of our, our series that we're going through to the end of the year. And we know that that term is used over 20 times in the Old Testament. It shall come to pass used nearly 60 times in the Old uh, Testament. It will come to pass. Not that it might come to pass, but it will, and it will be fulfilled. And as we look at this going through Scripture, we know that there are battles, as I said. There's a last world war called the Battle of Armageddon. And even non-believers are familiar with that term, Armageddon. I remember back in the 90s when I first got into ministry that there was the Gulf War and Desert Storm and when Iraq invaded Kuwait and a coalition of nations that would come against Iraq and Saddam Hussein led by the United States and people had this renewed interest in end-time prophecy again. And they were saying, is this the battle of Armageddon? Is this going to lead to it? So now with the war breaking out in Israel, there's a renewed interest, confusion, and people are asking, is this the battle? Is this the Armageddon that's happening? We know that the battle of, uh, that takes place, the last world war, will take place at the end of the tribulation period in the valley of Megiddo of Jezreel, northern Israel. It is the final battle in the history of man before the second coming of Jesus Christ. As we come to Ezekiel 38 and 39, this particular battle is really unknown by even Christians, unbelievers. Uh, many Christians are very much unaware of what is described to us, the war of Gog and Magog. It is the largest description of any battle in the scriptures. And as I said, it includes the aftermath, cleanup, which is unique in all of scripture. And as we look at this, we want to know specifically what is this battle that we are reading about. So as we read this, there's important information given to us about the war of Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 38. We know that it is after chapters 36 and 37, the restoration of Israel coming back into the land, a nation that was dead that's alive once again. In verse 8 of Ezekiel 38, what we read, that when the people of God are gathered on the mountains of Israel from many nations, brought out of the nations. So in your notes, you can write number one. There's seven things I'm going to give to you to take note of in the text that we just read. Number one, this battle is taking place after they've taken a national identity. There will be a spiritual identity, a restoration that will take place after this war, after this battle. We see that at the end of chapter 39, when God pours out his spirit on the nation of Israel. They are a nation. First of all, that has not happened uh, since really 605 B.C. When Nebuchadnezzar came in and took uh, the choice man of Judah away captive, the 70 years of captivity began. 
He would destroy Jerusalem, as I said, in 586 B.C. Then after Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire. That was followed by Greece, Alexander the Great. And then Rome would rule over that area of the Middle East during the time of Jesus, the known world. So Israel was a province, but under the rule of the Gentile empires. And then after 70 AD, when Titus and the Roman legions surrounded Jerusalem and came in and destroyed Jerusalem in the second temple, we know that they were led away captive to all the nations, and they would be out of the land for 2,000 years until 1948. As we discuss in week one, that the Mediterranean miracle, unheard of in human history, that a group of people were out of their homeland for 2,000 years, that's two millennium, and they come back into their original homeland, and they're a nation once again, and we know that Amos says once they come back into the land, they're not going to be plucked out. They're going to remain there, and we see the significance of that as we go through the scriptures and look at end-time events. So this battle takes place in light of that. This battle will take place when Israel is a nation, which they are, back in the land. So a key verse here in verse 8 is this. Notice in verse 8, in the latter days. And any student of prophecy reading that, that'll make their ears perk up. So this battle will take place, number one, when they've taken a national identity. That's happened. Number two. It will take place after many days in the latter years, just prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. A little side note for you that you can show your brothers and sisters who hold to replacement theology. And again, to remind you, replacement theology says that Israel has forfeited the promises that were given to her by the Lord, the covenant that God made with Abraham, uh, that no longer are they valid, uh, they're void, and now the church has replaced Israel, or we're spiritual Israel. Well, we don't see anywhere in Scripture where God has voided those promises. And again, it's a unilateral, unconditional covenant that God made with, with Israel. And we know that as we look at this, that we can read it, and I believe it confirms it very clearly. On that day, verse 14 of the chapter, what we just read, that when my people Israel, verse 16, you will come up against my people Israel, God is owning them as his own. As well as verse 16, in the latter days. Verse 16 goes on to say, I will bring you against my land so that the nations shall know me. So we know that God is owning them as Israel back in the land, rebuilding the ancient cities, working the land again in the mountains of Israel, gathered from all the nations. And thirdly, you can write down, is, second of all, this is in the latter days. Thirdly, you can write down in your notes, we cannot look at any historical battle that has fulfilled this battle told to us by Ezekiel. Israel has had nothing like this in their history, especially when you remember that they were out of the land for 2,000 years. And the ancient prophet given this prophecy under the anointing and inspiration of God. Number four, what we need to keep in mind, this is not the battle of Armageddon. There are those who liken this to the last world war, told to us in Revelation chapter 16. And you can read it yourself in, in your Bible. We read that the battle of Armageddon takes place as the sixth bold judgment is being poured out. 
Revelation chapter 16, leading up to the battle of Armageddon, that we read that loathsome sores came upon those who took the mark of the beast. And the sea and the waters turned to blood, and men were scorched with great heat, and there was darkness. And there's no mention of that here in this Ezekiel account of the war of Gog and Magog. Revelation chapter 16 goes on to tell us that the Euphrates rivers will be dried up to make way for the kings of the east, uh, that they may be prepared for the battle of Armageddon. We know that nations play a role in the last days. Daniel's very clear about that. The messianic psalm of Psalm 2, that the nations rage. We know that there are certain nations mentioned in Scripture with Israel being the epicenter of end-time prophecy. But in the book of Revelation, at the end of the tribulation period, that period spoken of Revelation chapter, uh, chapter 6 through 19, that there's the battle Armageddon where the nations of the world is... Jerusalem becomes a cup of trembling, Zechariah says, to all the nations. They will gather in that valley. And the kings of the east will come across the Euphrates River, which is in Iraq, across the Fertile Crescent into northern Israel, into the valley, Megiddo, Jezreel. And it's probably a reference to China. China is very hostile towards Israel right now. Maybe perhaps her allies. It could be North Korea. We don't know for sure. But the kings of the east are mentioned. And they are not mentioned here in Ezekiel chapter 38 in this account. Matter of fact, Revelation chapter 16 concerning the battle of Armageddon tells us in verses 13 and 14 of the chapter that there will be three unclean spirits that will be released, that is, unchained. And they will go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. There's no mention of all the kings in this Ezekiel account. Here in Ezekiel 38, as we took note in verses 8 and 11 as we read it, that it comes at a time, this war here recorded for us, when Israel is dwelling safely. That will not be the case at the end of the tribulation period. And the reason is, is because of the persecution of the Antichrist. We know from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that the Antichrist will go into the rebuilt temple. He will proclaim himself as God to be worshipped as God. And anyone who does not take the mark of the beast, that he's going to go after them. The tribulation saints that come to Christ, he's going to go against Israel. And a remnant of them are going to flee to the rock city of Petra where they're going to be there. And they're going to remain there for three and a half years. So there's no safety that they're dwelling in. This, as the battle of Armageddon is described to us, is a time of Jacob's trouble. So I believe that definitely this here in Ezekiel 38 is distinct from the battle of Armageddon. Now, some put this chapter at the end of the age, at the end of the millennium reign of Christ. Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle. And God will devour them. And Satan at that time is going to be thrown into the lake of fire where the Antichrist and the false prophet are. It does not, Revelation chapter 20, does not fit chronologically of what we're being told here in Ezekiel 38 and 39 for many reasons. 
So as we consider this, and as you jot these things down that we notice, that Israel is a nation when this battle takes place. Second of all, in the latter days. Thirdly, we know historically it has not taken place. Fourthly, this is not the battle of Armageddon. And then number five, look at the participants. This is really important. We have Gog that is mentioned. Now, Gog is a title. The title of a man in the land of Magog. Uh, here, uh, as Gog is noted as the prince of Rush, Meshach, and Tubal. But some have suggested that perhaps that it could be a title of a demonic being influencing the leader of Magog. Now, to me, there's no doubt there, there's going to be demonic influence because Satan has always wanted to destroy the Jewish people. That's why we see anti-Semitism that is rising today in the world and even in our own country, in our own leadership. That it's more than a geopolitical uh, kind of thing that's taking place. It's a spiritual thing. And Satan wants to destroy the Jews, and they're going to go through the fire, and he's going to persecute heavily the Jews during the tribulation period. But we know here that there's demonic forces that are, that are influencing. Satan's working overtime, even in our own nation. We get a little bit of insight in Daniel chapter 10 of the demonic realm. That there, Daniel had been praying and fasting for three weeks. And then an angel comes to Daniel and says that God has heard your prayer from day one. And I came to, to give you an answer, but I got caught up. I, I was doing battle with the, the prince of, of Persia. And Michael the archangel had to come and help me. Uh, kind of, we don't fully understand it, but it's declared. And then it's mentioned that, that I got to go back. And there's the prince of Greece that, that we're going to have to do battle with. So we do know that as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6 concerning spiritual warfare, that, that Satan has his principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness of hosts in high places, that he has his demonic forces organized. And I would not be surprised to have their demons over nations. And certainly we, we see Satan, as I said, having great influence in our nation. And it concerns me. The direction of our nation, the way it's going. And we also know that Satan wants to come after not only the leaders in our nation and have great influence, but his demonic forces are going to come after you. Will you please remember that? I don't want to overestimate the power that Satan has in our lives because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. But I want you to know this, that he's going to come after you and your children and your grandchildren. He's going to come after this church because he knows that his days are short. And he's going to do everything he can to make us ineffective, to get a foothold into our lives. And that's why it's so important that we put on the whole armor of God. We don't fight for victory. Remember that we fight from victory. And always remember, too, that as James says, that as you submit to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. But spiritual warfare is very, very real. And we know that there's demonic forces that are working in this world, and it wouldn't surprise me, they're a great demonic force over nations. So in this battle of Ezekiel, you have Gog, who is the leader of the land of Magog. 
There, where is that? Well, Jerome, the historian, tells us that they're the Scythians. Uh, Scythians. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us the same thing. The Scythians were the forerunners of the Russians. They all tell us that. Uh, they were between the Caspian and Black Sea, north of Israel. Meshach and Tubal, the, the biblical data, though sparse, would refer to the area of Turkey. Then in verse 5, joining this coalition of nations coming against Israel, you have Persia. Now, that's an easy one. That's Iran. Until 1935, Iran was called Persia. Ethiopia, or Kush, which actually speaks of, of northern Sudan. When I was in Sudan, in South Sudan, when it was one country, it's now North and South Sudan, South Sudan Christians, North Sudan uh, heavily Muslim. When... I was teaching the chaplains of the Southern Sudanese Army during the war. So many of them were getting killed as they were going up to the front lines to to minister to the soldiers. And we would go in with Wes Bentley, who many of you know, he's been here and has spoken, and we were teaching them through the books of the Bible. And I remember Pastor Ray Bentley was teaching the chaplains about Ezekiel. His assignment was the book of Ezekiel. And he said that if you're ever called to war to go against Israel, don't go, because God's going to destroy those armies. And they're going, wow, really? We're in the Bible? Yes, you are. But now, even since that time when he was teaching them, that North Sudan and South Sudan are two separate countries. So perhaps, you know, Northern Sudan, uh, heavily uh, Islamic, uh, we know that. Ethiopia, as I mentioned here, Libya and Northern Africa. Gomar is mentioned. It took Arma, which speaks again of Turkey, Northern Turkey, Armenia. Notice verse 16. Listen from the far north and all its troops and many people. This is a huge, huge invasion. This is a very large army from different sides coming against Israel. Verse 9, we read the description. You will ascend coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud. You and all your troops... So as you look at these nations mentioned, what do you find today? Remember, Ezekiel's writing this 2,600 years ago. There's three main players here, Russia, Iran, and Turkey. Now, when I first started teaching on end-time prophecy and and teaching through the Bible, um, this chapter uh, wasn't commented a lot on. We thought that perhaps that it would take place in the middle of the tribulation period leading to the battle of Armageddon. And one of the reasons that that was a, a, a thought among Bible teachers is because at that time, these were such unlikely alliances, these nations, particularly Russia, Iran, and Turkey. Uh, Turkey had friendly relations with Israel where people from Israel would go to Turkey and they would vacation there. But then in 2004, I believe, when Erdogan became the prime minister and president, it was a secular country, a secular state. Um, and then all of a sudden, he's turned against Israel. Uh, he is a, uh, his country, a NATO member, but aligning himself up with Iran and Russia and very much declaring himself to come against Israel. So things have changed. We know that Russia, that um, even the United uh, Nations ambassador to Russia just a couple weeks ago said that Israel has no, you know, right to defend themselves. 
and coming and becoming more hostile towards Israel. We know that Iran, Iran has uh, their whole uh, foreign policy is based on a caliphate. A caliphate is we are going to take over the world. It's going to be Islamic world. We're going to usher in the Islamic Messiah, the, the, the Mahdi, the Islamic Mahdi, that's going to come in and kill all the Christians and the Jews. And we're going to do it. The caliphate is going to come through weapons of mass destruction. That's the way that the Iran sees it. So when they say they're going to destroy the great Satan and the little Satan, which is Israel, they mean it. They mean it. And they really believe that. <clears throat> so that's why Israel is taking it very seriously. We know that Iran is trying very desperately, if they don't already have, developing nuclear weapons. Very much a threat. So these three nations over the last few years, Russia and Iran and Turkey, have signed military alliances. Their troops are in Syria right now. I remember standing on uh, Mount Bintel in northern Israel, right on the Syrian border, and just standing there and talking with uh, Shalom, who was um, a colonel in the IDF. He was there in the Yom Kippur War. We're looking over the valley called the Valley of Tears that leads to Damascus. That's where Paul would go, and he had his encounter with the Lord, the conversion of Paul the Apostle. Up there on Mount Bintel, when you overlook it, on a clear day, you can see the outskirts of Damascus. We were closer to Damascus than we were to the Sea of Galilee. And as we're overlooking that valley, thinking this is where that invasion is probably going to come through into the mountains of, of Israel. But he, he was speaking about what happened in the Yom Kippur War and the tanks that came across that valley. And we, we were kind of looking at that, and it was very, very sobering. But we know that as we were there, um, he was uh, also a part of the Mossad. He said, there's Russian troops right down there in those villages. There's, there's Iranian Revolutionary Guards, Hezbollah, proxy of Iran. Um, there's Turkish soldiers that are in the north part of the country. They're all there. Russia has a major military base in Syria, and they're there to stay. So we see these alliances getting stronger, Russia, Iran, Turkey coming together, um, having their, their own military packs and alliances uh, it is getting stronger and stronger and showing more hostility towards Israel. And there's no doubt about it. And that's why we're watching this. We know that Israel... Ezekiel 38, notice that the Lord said here, just take note of this, that I will turn you around and I will put hooks in your jaws when they come into Israel. The Lord says, I'm going to put a hook in your jaw. Now, the ten northern tribes, when the Assyrians came in to take them off captive in 720 B.C., we know that the Assyrians were brutal. And what they did is they put fish hooks in the jaws of the captives in Israel drug them off to captivity. Here's kind of a play on words. The Lord says, I'm going to put a hook in your jaw, and I'm going to bring you down. I'm going to bring you down. In verse 8, into the mountains of Israel. Uh, our mention, this invasion, comes from the north. Verse 15, when you come out of your place from the far north. And we know that, again, that these troops are, are mounting in Syria, there's such upheaval. Uh, we hear a lot about uh, Iran developing nuclear weapons, all these things. 
that in this invasion, I want you to write number six. It comes at a time when Israel is dwelling safely, verse eight. Again, it's mentioned as we read um, in the chapter, as we uh, see that uh, in the latter days, um, that they will come when they're dwelling safe uh, in verse 14 as well. Now, this has changed. Before, when I taught on this and hearing, you know, good, solid Bible teachers on Ezekiel 38, we thought Israel was dwelling safely because of the strength of their military. And, and so this is a time where they're dwelling safely. I don't think we can say that right now. Because when Hamas broke through the barrier and attacked those kibbutzes and villages and, and slaughtered 1,200 you know, people, uh, such evil acts, and we're hearing more and more about it. And then also up north, as we know that many of the villages up along the Lebanese border, the people have evacuated. Those, those villages are empty because they said, we can't live in bomb sh- shelters all day long. We don't feel safe. What if what happened with, with in the, near the Gaza area, whatever happened there, if that happens up north, we don't feel safe. We don't want to go back home. So they don't feel safe. We know that Hezbollah, a proxy of Iran, has 250,000 missiles aimed at Israel. So is the war going to expand? Israel has said, listen, that we need to make our, our homeland safe again. So as they go to the war against Hamas, that they are determined to destroy Hamas. And also they said, when we're done with Hamas, we're going to go after Hezbollah up in Syria. They're going to take care of the proxies in, in uh, Lebanon, uh, Hezbollah, Syria. And, and so maybe at that time that they'll feel more safe. What is going to be the outcome of this war? Is it going to expand? Some have suggested that Israel is going to try to cut the head off the snake. That they're going to go after Iran. There's also funding the hoodies in Yemen firing missiles at Israel. So they're not feeling secure right now. So it's going to come at a time when they're dwelling safely. Unwalled villages, of course, ancient uh, villages at that time, Ezekiel's writing, they had walls around them to protect them. Um, so we just assume, you know, they're dwelling safely. They have a strong military. Well, they don't feel that way anymore. People are saying we don't feel safe. We can't go back home. This is unsafe until this is taken care of, the threat against us. So that's why there are those who are saying this is stage-setting events that are taking place that could lead to Ezekiel 38. And then number seven here, as we read, and we'll talk more about it next week, is that these nations that are coming in, there's another confederation of nations that are protesting on behalf of Israel, and they are saying, why are you coming in? Verse 12, to take plunder, to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places. Sheba, the Dan, the young lions of Tarsus, we'll talk about who they are next week. They're protesting, but they're saying, why are you coming in? So there's been a lot of speculation about what is the booty, what is the plunder, what is the spoils. I believe primarily it's the land. There's been a lot of talk about the natural gas, the oil that's been found. I think that it's the land, how they have been prosperous and working the land, and they're going to come against Israel. And maybe perhaps as they take that buffer area and 
Lebanon, I, I don't know, Syria. Some have suggested that Isaiah 38 and Isaiah chapter 17 is the destruction, a ruinous heap, as we read in verse 1. Now, Damascus, they say they're the oldest continuous city in the whole world. Nearly four in its history where it's a ruinous heap. So it's a prophecy that needs to be fulfilled. I don't know. I don't know how it's all connected. But we do know this. That the alliances are coming together. And we see that there are stage setting events for this next major war perhaps in the Middle East. When is it going to happen? Where is it in the timeline of the prophetic scenario? Come back tomorrow, next week, okay? <laughs> and we'll talk more about it, and, and we'll look at it, and also listen to cleanup of this battle, which I think you're going to find very intriguing. But in the meantime, listen. In the meantime, keep looking to the Lord. Be comforted by the Lord. I'm going to keep reminding you, even as Paul would write to the Christians at Thessalonica, even as Jesus said to his disciples, don't be troubled in your heart. These things aren't given to us to frighten us. They're given to us so that we understand that we have a blessed hope and that we have a living hope and that we can be wise in the days in which we're in and we can use it to talk to others that, listen, this, this world is not getting brighter and more rosy. That it is perilous times. And I pray for peace. And it breaks my heart to hear about war. But these things are going to come to pass. And we can live wisely in the day in which we are in and be discerning. Because behold the days are coming. And we are in very unique times. So keep your eyes on the things above and be thankful for the Lord. Remember, when Jesus said, when you begin to see these things come to pass, look up and rejoice. Why? You guys know, because your redemption draws near. Amen? Amen. So, Lord, we thank you. We thank you. We can talk so much more, and we will. Next time is we're going to talk about um, these things that are unfolding right before our very eyes. Ezekiel 36 and 37 in our lifetime. Absolutely amazing. And now, as we see the alliances coming together for this war of Gog and Magog to be fulfilled in the latter days. And so, Lord, we do pray. We pray that for us as Christians, we be wise and discerning. This is given to us. All scripture is profitable. And it's not to to freak us out that we can live in fear, but we can live with hope knowing that your word is true. And even though there's perilous times ahead, we don't know exactly. We don't know the day or the hour of your coming. But Lord, we can live in a way where we're hopeful and we're comforted because we belong to a kingdom that will last forever. And there is a blessed hope before us and a promise of eternal life for those of us who have yielded our lives to you, Lord. And may we be thankful this Thanksgiving as we gather with friends and family. The greatest blessing this Christmas season as we enter into it, 
have born unto you in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A message of glad tidings. And the very first message of don't be afraid. So Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you. Even in the midst of difficulties and in the midst of hardship. That when our hearts are overwhelmed, even as David wrote, attend to my prayer as I cry out to you, O Lord. And that you hear us. Your promises are true for us. I pray you bless everyone here this week. Those who are traveling, keep them safe. Those who have visitors and family coming in, protect them. As we gather around the dinner table, may truly we have hearts of gratitude and thanksgiving. And I pray for those who feel isolated and alone, that they would know that you're with them. You promise you'll never leave us or forsake us. And I want to pray as we finish here for anyone who may be here or in the coffee shop or listening later on the radio. Maybe you're listening online right now. That you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. He is your salvation. There's none other. He's the one that went to the cross and cried out, it is finished as he made atonement for your sins that were placed upon him. There is none other. And his message to you, if you have not yielded your life to Jesus and come and believe in him, to repent, change direction, and realize that you're a sinner that needs to be forgiven. Jesus, the invitation has come. And because of his love for you, he went to that cross. And you can come and ask him to sit upon the throne of your life as your personal Lord and Savior, to have the promise of heaven, to be reconciled to the Father. You come by faith. And you can do that right now because today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow's promise to any of us. And you pray, Jesus, I come to you and I ask you to forgive me of my sins, a sinner. I believe you died on the cross. For me, forgive me. And you rose again in your life, and I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. And I want to abide with you, and learn of you, and walk with you all the days of my life in this new beginning and a new family I belong to. In Jesus' name, amen.